0: Well, I love that story, and I love the lyrics to that song, that we need someone to fix us, whether it's fix physically, and maybe we haven't thought a lot about God or His relevance in our life until we come to a tragedy in our life. Sometimes we need God to fix a relationship, but it was until we came face-to-face face that relationship we didn't realize just how much we needed Him. Other times, it's I love what Corey talked about. He talked about a peace, a peace that transcended his circumstances, And I think all of us hunger for the type of peace that will not only deal help us with death. Sure, we want peace that we're going to go someplace good when we die. But how can we have the kind of peace right now in the midst of our current circumstances? So in our series, Back to the Drawing Board, we're taking different books of the Bible and we're summarizing and drawing our way through it. So last week we looked at the book of John, the Gospel of John, and how to balance grace and truth. Today we're going to look at how to find peace. And specifically, how do you find peace? How do you find a God who can give you peace, that can fix you, despite your difficulties, despite your wrongdoing? God has a message for us. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how do you live guilt-free when you make mistakes? How do you live guilt-free and find a peace that transcends those circumstances? Because here's the, the issue with guilt. You know, sometimes we grew up in a religious environment, or we were near a religious environment, felt like a big blanket of guilt was all over us, right? And it's like you're smothered in this big blanket of guilt, and you can't ever get out from under it. You're like, well, how do, who's to blame for that? And we say, well, you know, sometimes <coughs> we blame the religious institution we grew up in. Well, the reason I, I feel guilty all the time is because I grew up Catholic, or I grew up Baptist, or I grew up Lutheran, right? It was their fault I, f- I feel so guilty. But what do you do with guilt and wrongdoing? On one sense, you, you know that sometimes guilt and shame can can restrict you from being everything you're made to be. It doesn't bring you real peace. On the other hand, how many... Hours have you spent trying to talk your kids into how to own guilt? No, no, you really did do that. Stop making excuses. How many times have you been in a marriage conflict and and you're trying to convince the other person they're really guilty of what they are unaware of and they're trying to convince you you're guilty of something you're unaware of? What do you do with guilt? It can be so detrimental on one side and eat away at at peace. Can you imagine a, a society without guilt and a judicial system in fact, if you're a psychologist, you'll know that sociopaths and psychopaths, the, the thing that makes you a psychopath is you can't experience guilt. So we got this this real issue, is that guilt, you can't live with it to have peace, but you can't live without it to be a responsible adult. And the book of Romans addresses this very issue, and it's going to build up to a crescendo of this solution. He'll say, there is now, therefore, right now, not when you get to heaven, right now in your life... You can live with no condemnation. There's a type of sorrow for what you've done wrong that isn't shame and condemnation. If you figure out what it means, if you can experience what it means to be in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? We're going to develop that today. He's going to walk through a couple stages. Number one, what keeps us from peace, what keeps us from letting God fix us, is number one, we deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we really are. The number two, we try and achieve our own self-worth and peace through through doing good works. And what we really need to do is receive something, a gift from God, and be able to implement that into our thinking and our relationships. So Paul starts with bad news. <laughs> the bad news is, whether you grow up religious or irreligious, we both have a problem that religion can't fix, law-keeping can't, kick, it can't fix, is that we are guilty, we do things we know we shouldn't do. That's our basic problem. Problem that keeps us from peace, that keeps us from peace with God, that keeps us from peace with relationships. And he said, but the problem is, we know in our heart we got a problem, but our first step is we deceive. We we deceive ourselves into saying that we really don't. And so our heart is chained up with guilt. And so what we try and do is we try and address that guilt by deceiving. We say, well, you know, I'm not really as bad as you think. I'm not really as bad as you say. I'm not really as bad as maybe my, my attributes tell me. So Paul says, well, what, what causes this kind of guilt? What causes my heart to get so chained up? Well, here's what he says in the first chapter of Romans. He says, since the beginning of creation, God revealed himself, his invisible attributes through creation. He's powerful. He's artistic. He's personal. You can see that when you see how creation was made. But instead of allowing God to be the, the number one thing in your life, allowing your creator to be your king, you instead exchanged the good thing which was God, and you replace God with something else that you made, to which we we think of this word as idolatry, like, you know, those people in ancient places or ancient cultures that made rock gods or, 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 or wood gods. But he actually is talking about how you and I, instead of finding God to be our source of identity and our sense of purpose and our sense of forgiveness, we say, well, God's important. He's just not that important. We find our real identity from career, from power, from being a good person, that us needing to be our own good person becomes more important than God making us right. So what's called idolatry, God-swapping. I'll give you an example. It's a really personal article uh, shared recently by Michael Jordan, which shows how he found his identity, his purpose in his career, in his power, and now that same thing that brought him joy his whole life is now crushing him in his 50s. His 50th birthday, an ESPN senior writer Wright Thompson spent some time with number 23. He said, Jordan isn't happy. Quote, I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. Nothing wrong with playing basketball, nothing wrong with being successful. But he's saying, that was my ultimate meaning. And now that I don't have that, I feel empty. The writer asked, well, how do you replace that and find something else to live for? And he said, you don't. You just learn to live with it. For almost three decades on basketball supreme stage, Jordan lived for the next challenge, the next challenger. Naysayers became friends for they brought the the, the fuel that he needed to, to perform well, to drive, to conquer, to vindicate his name. The insatiable drive to prove himself propelled Jordan to the pinnacle of the sporting world and motivated him to stay there. And he might have stopped playing basketball, but the rage is still there even today, even though he's done. The fire remains, which is why he searches for release on the golf course at a blackjack table, why he spends so much time and energy on the Charlotte Bobcats, and why he dreams of returning to play. The man has left the court, but the addictions won't leave the man. He goes on to say that even his his uh, critics' opinions matter to him. He's constantly reading his critics. He, He calls it a needle in his arm. He wants to make sure people approve of him. In fact, his private security team has a name for him. Lest you wonder who's the most important person in the room, the security team's code name for Michael Jordan is Yahweh, the very name of God. Now, in that story, I think we see a lot of ways in which we can exchange the most important thing in our life from God to career, to power, to approval, And what Paul's saying is, whenever you exchange God with any of these things, they will ultimately crush under the weight. If your marriage becomes the thing you live for, you'll eventually crush the weight of your marriage because your marriage cannot sustain your full need for purpose and meaning. Your your financial accounts cannot fully sustain your need for search and meaning. Your heart is too deep. What causes guilt, Paul's saying, is that we have exchanged God for something else. Think of it like um, the movie Indiana Jones, The Raiders of Lost Ark. Indiana Jones comes in, and he's going to have to replace an idol. If you remember, there's an actual idol there. And he's going to try and figure out, what could be equal weight to that that I could swap with? And he tries to take a bag of sand, if you remember the scene, and he tries to think, I think this will probably do it. And of course, he puts that on there, and for a moment, you think he's made it. For a moment, you think he's going to be successful. You think he's going to get away with it, and then, remember the scene? The weight was different. And God is basically saying, I created your heart to need meaning, purpose, and significant with the weight of who I am. And when you try and swap me out with something else, it'll bring some joy for a while. It'll sustain you for a while. But ultimately, the drive will eventually leave you needing more. Career can't fully satisfy you. Being a good person can't fully satisfy you. It won't bring you ultimate meaning and purpose, other people's approval. It's a good thing, but it needs to not be your ultimate thing, or you'll collapse under the weight of it. To which we say, "Ah, okay, okay, maybe, but that doesn't really seem like it's that big a deal. Maybe my career becomes too important to me. Maybe being a good mom becomes too important to me. That is not that big a deal, which is why Paul goes on later. He says, well, the problem is you don't realize, and I don't realize, what's broken in my heart. You don't realize just how bad the condition is because you deceive yourself into thinking you're basically a good person all the time. He says, so the law or the Bible came in like a microscope to look at your heart and bring stuff to the surface that you couldn't see with your naked eye. And he gives a list, and it's a pretty convicting list. Here's the list he gives in Romans of the type of things that lead to guilt. He said, when you look deep into your own heart, here's what you're going to find. There's some unrighteousness there, sexual immorality there, lust, lust for things, lust for approval, lust for stuff, lust for other people. I had a guy this morning, he said to me, he goes, I know I'm really struggling with lust because uh, the other day I found myself sort of looking at the back of this woman, starting to lust after her in in a store, and I realized it was a mannequin. What is wrong with me? (laughs) There's just something broken in us, but look at what else is on the list. Wickedness, covetousness, oh my goodness, covetousness makes a list? Wanting other people's lives, wanting other people's stuff, wanting other people's kids, I mean... Wanting my kids to behave the way your kids behave. I mean, I don't know if I've, I've given a day without coveting. Maliciousness, envy, murder. So I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus says, even if you hated somebody in your heart, that's the that's the, the pieces parts on, on the slab. That, that's what becomes murder later, and you're equally guilty. Look what else makes the list. Whispers, gossip. Gossip made the list? Backbiting. Haters of God. Being proud? Yeah, ego. Needing everything to be about you. Inventing evil things. Disobedience to parents? How did that make the list? For crying out loud. That's in the same list as, as murder? What's that insubordination of I know better than you and you can't tell me what to do? It's a symptom of what's really broken in us. And we deceive ourselves in saying, that's ah, not me. Being unloving. Being unforgiving. Being unmerciful. And you read that list and... and If you don't deceive yourself, you say, wow, there is a lot of that in me all the time. Went to a friend's wedding recently, and we were going skiing about a few months later, and I said, hey, I was at your wedding. It was really interesting. I I haven't been to a a wedding like that before, but I noticed in your vows that you promised before God and, and your friends that you would get your wife to heaven. I said, did I hear that right? He goes, yeah, yeah, that's what I committed to. Wow, so uh, how how does one do that? I said, like, like how, how do, you you committed before God knows to get your wife to heaven. How are you going to get your wife to heaven? He's like, well, I don't know. You just try and be a good person. Well, I would want to know what's on the list. Like, how do you be a good person? He's like, I don't know. He said, Well, I basically follow the Ten Commandments. I said, Well, can you name ten of them? He couldn't name two of them. So he's following the Ten Commandments. Doesn't know two of them. And he goes, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. And, and I said, well, Jesus says that even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's like, that's in the Bible? That <laughs> kind of is. He's like, oh, and he was starting to realize he's been deceiving himself and to he's a good person when really there's something broken in all of us. And that's why we have guilt. There's stuff broken that we try and deceive ourselves in and cover up. I had a friend I uh, talked to just this week. And he said his father felt like a very religious, very upstanding, career-driven guy who was very successful. And says, hey, "I don't need religion; it's a crutch. I'm basically a good person." And he said, "Well, Dad, um, you've now asked me to be the executor of your will, you know, in, in preparation for your last days. And I just got a question: like w- this check that's going out every month, where's that money going to? Oh, don't worry about that. Well, if you want me to manage the money, I need to know stuff. And as I begin to dig into this," There was a check going out like $10,000 a month, huge amount for the last, like, decade. And he found his dad had an affair about a decade ago and was paying somebody off to keep quiet. And he said, for the first time in my life, my dad became humble. I'd never seen my dad humble. He's like, yeah, it was a stupid thing I did. Yeah, I betrayed your mom, don't tell her. He's like, Dad, you didn't just betray mom. You've been hiding this. You allowed her to blackmail you and you've given away... Hundreds of thousands of dollars of our family fortune that was supposed to be for me and, and my brothers and sisters, because of what you 've done, he says for one moment, his dad began to realize, man, I am capable of stealing of lying of, of, of lust he said, and then his dad said,, yeah, I know that was wrong, but i 'm still basically a good person. The human heart always defaults back to trying to dismiss looking in the mirror, and that 's what paul 's going to tell us he says If you look in the mirror, you're going to find that you have exchanged stuff. And more than that, you don't need to look at the Bible if you're not religious. God evaluates us all so fairly. Because he wrote on your heart the law. Your conscience tells you what to do. And even if your own conscience was your own prosecuting attorney, your own conscience tells you that you haven't lived up to your own standard of right and wrong. Here's how Paul says it. He says, you have a law written on your own heart. You're a law to yourself. And if you listen to your heart... If you listen to your own conscience, if you listen to your excuses, like why do we make excuses? Because we know we've done something wrong. We need a good excuse. And listen to your secrets. If you and I had to come face to face with all of our secrets, would you be guilty or innocent? If your conscience came up here and said, let me tell you how many times I've told Chad what to do, and he's ignored me, he shut me down, one time he kicked me out of the house. I mean, my conscience would have so much to say about how I violated it, how I lied to it, how I disagreed with it, how I didn't do what it said. And that's what Paul's saying here, is that the law comes in, and it doesn't do anything except show you what's already broken. You've got these contaminants in you. I've got these contaminants in me. And so we need to stop deceiving ourselves and realize that if you were in a witness chair, and if your secrets, your excuses, and your conscience were there, they would say to you what you're deceiving yourself into saying, which is that you're not at peace with God because there's brokenness within you. And even your conscience, you you stop listening to it. You shut it down. In fact, I read an article... um, about exactly that happened in 1984. It was a I think it's a let me think how to pronounce it. Avanca or Avianca Airlines, one of the pilots was driving along, or flying along. And as he was flying along, they would get all this off the black box later. They heard this conversation going on between the man and his uh, terrain avoidance system. It began to cry in this high pitched, shrill voice in English. Pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up pull up, I think I know how to fly better than this thing. And on the black box, you hear the shrill, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. And you hear the voice of the pilot saying, shut up, gringo, click. Minutes before they crashed into the mountain. And that's basically what Paul is saying happens in our heart, is that we've got this inner law that's telling us, don't do that, Mm-mm-mm. you wouldn't want somebody to do that, oh, don't you, and we just shut it down. I know better, I know better, that's not true. And so we are guilty. But again, the bad news is followed by good news. And then Paul's going to say, but here's the good news. If you will realize, stop deceiving yourself, and realize that you are guilty, and in the witness chair is your heart, your conscience, and your excuses telling you that you need peace with God, you need something to justify, you need something to forgive you, then the next part of Romans is going to set up the stage that there is a way in which you can actually find peace with God. Once you identify the problem, uh, one solution that doesn't work, then God will give you a solution that does work. So our instinct is, okay, I'll admit I've done a few things wrong. But our instinct is not to turn to God to forgive us or turn to God to make us right. Our our instinct is, I don't need your stinking charity. I'll achieve it myself. I'll make up for what I've done wrong by doing more good stuff. And what Paul's going to say is, you can't perform this away and you can't dismiss this away. You can try and be good, but if you're like me, every time you try and do something good, it also gets saturated with that self-centered intentions. So Paul says, your good works cannot achieve the righteousness and peace that you're longing for. He says it this way, all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, your good works, the works in your flesh, in your human body, it's not going to justify you. The word justified, it's interesting. We're longing to be just as if i never done anything wrong. We want that, but we know it's not true. We long for that, but we know we can't have it. And no matter how much you achieve, how much you give, how much you pray, how much you help other people, your good deeds can't ever achieve and make up for what you've done wrong. Which makes sense, right? Like, how much money would you need to give away to make up for lusting after somebody? Whatever the number suddenly becomes a a, a way to excuse your lusting. And that's what he's saying, there's no way to put a good deed that can counterbalance your bad deed. It just doesn't work that way. So either you get worn out, I tried Chad, I was religious my whole life, and I just got sick of it, I just couldn't do it anymore. And you gave up. Or you're still in the game. Oh yeah, you don't know me, Chad. Man, I'm really doing it well. And you're an overachiever and you're a perfectionist and you know just given enough chances and enough opportunities, you're going to be able to do it. You're going to be able to justify yourself, uh, make up for what you've done wrong if you could just get enough time. And Paul says, good luck. I was one of the most righteous people that ever lived. I had all the pedigrees. I was a rabbi. I was a Pharisee. I was an expert in the law, keeping the law. And I'm telling you, it could not make up for what I had done wrong. So you can try and achieve it on your own, but Paul says it's not going to work. You're going to either burn out, burn up, or run out of gas. Maybe you've been there on your journey. You've either run out, you know, i just, religion left a bad taste in my mouth because I just couldn't keep up with all the rules and I just threw it all out. Or maybe you still you're spinning your tires. You're hoping to eventually make it, and you're just worn out. It reminds me, of my dad and I went to Sturgis together, a big motorcycle rally, and so we went with my son. He turned 13 well, almost five years ago, so we go to Sturgis. And while we're there, they have the burnout rally, and if you've never seen the burnout rally, it's pretty cool. They take a Harley Davidson and they actually park it up against a, a wall, and they got like you know hundreds of these things, and everybody's watching. And so a hundred motorcycles parked up against a wall, so they can't move. And it's like ready, set, go, and they all whoom whoom whoom, 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 whoom. and they gun it whoom, second gear whoom, third gear whoom, and they're going as fast as they possibly can, but they're not moving. But that back wheel is spinning like nobody's business. And this is called the burnout competition. Guess what the competition's goal is? First one to blow up their back tire. And there is smoke everywhere. There is smell everywhere. And you're just waiting. Boom! And eventually, kaboom! One of them explodes from the burnout rally. Now, sometimes, depending on how fast you're going, they run out of gas before they blow up their tire. And this is really Paul's point: is when you try and achieve or make up for your wrongdoing with your right doing, you're either going to burn out, blow up yourself. So stressed out because you always need to do more, always could have done more, always could have done more, and you're going to burn out or you're going to run out of gas. I, I threw out religion because I thought it was about being a good person. I'm just tired of not being able to make up for what I've done wrong. So Paul said, here's a dilemma. We can deceive ourselves saying it's not a problem, but there is one. We can try and achieve it on our own, but it's not going to work. We're trapped. We need a new solution. We need a way in which we can find the peace, find the the lack of condemnation, find the freedom, find the position that we cannot get on our own. And Paul says, I was even frustrated. Romans chapter 7. He said, here's it. I didn't lack education. It's not like somebody said, did you know? You're not supposed to lie. I knew that. But what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I find myself practicing. So honest. Another man who was equally as honest was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was going to be a lawyer studying Latin until uh, one year he was uh, finishing up fastest person to get his master's degree and bachelor's degree in his time. But he's walking home one day and there's lightning crashing all around. And he's so terrified he yells out, Save me, St. Anne! If you will save me from being hit by lightning, I'll become a monk. He survives that day. And much to his parents' chagrin, who put him through law school in Latin, he became a monk. He became a Catholic priest. And he began to study and to serve and to do everything he could. He was incredibly devout. In fact, his supervisors, fellow priests, had never seen devotion and commitment to Scripture reading and prayer like they saw in Martin Luther. And he said he would ask them, it doesn't matter what I do, no matter how devout I am, I can't seem to make up for all the wrongdoing I've done. And they said, you know, just don't worry about it. You're fine. You're a priest. You'll get in. It's like, but I know in my heart, when I look in my heart, I see these contaminants. And all my praying and all my helping and all my reading and all my giving doesn't make up for those contaminants. And one day he was reading in the book of Romans, the book we're looking at, that there's a righteousness that comes from God to you. And that struck him. Wait, 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 I thought you brought your righteousness to God and he let you in. He says, I began to read that God gives you his righteousness, something you can't achieve on your own. He's so struck by this that he writes his 95 thesis up on the door and starts what's known as the Protestant Reformation. He says, we have missed the main message of the Bible. We thought it was about what we achieved for God. Paul says that can't be done. It's about what God achieved for us. And now, in this last video... I want to show you so many analogies Paul makes to try and make this good news crystal clear that this message is unlike religion. It's unlike anything that's ever happened before or since. I'll give you Paul's explanation, and then I'll drill down into it. So Paul's going to go chapter by chapter, and he's going to try and find dozens of analogies to help you get this message and not hear, I need to be a good, better person. And that's why we move from deceive to achieve, which doesn't work, to Receive. And here's the main point. God doesn't take saints. God makes saints. If you come to God, He makes you right now, if you receive His gift, into a saint. Like, I am not a saint. That's right, you're not a saint. It's not based on what you've done. He gives you the standing of a saint based on what He's done. You can achieve sainthood in your lifetime today if you want. God doesn't... Take saints, he makes saints. And look how many ways he says it. Here's the verse that Martin Luther saw. It's a righteousness of God, not of you. He gives you his righteousness. He wraps you up in his righteousness to make you a saint. He uses a, a financial accounting metaphor. He says, when you believe God to forgive you, when you believe God for this right standing, it's accounted to you as righteousness. It's as if God looked at your ledger and he not only erased everything in your negative ledger, le, le, ledger that you're guilty of, but then he put in the positive column everything Jesus did right got credited to your account. What? What? See, if it doesn't sound like good news, you haven't heard it yet. It's got to be, that can't be true. If you're going to turn away from religion and Christianity, don't do it because it's too much condemnation. Do it because it's too good to be true. The reason we start with the bad news is because you understand how much has been erased off your ledger so that you can understand how much you been accumulated to your ledger. He goes on. He says, when we were enemies, another metaphor, you were an enemy of God because you said, God, I, I minimize your importance in my life, I replace you with something else. When you were an enemy with God, well, I don't feel like an enemy of God. Well, that's the bad news. God reconciled with you. He, he turned you into a friend based on what he did on the cross. He goes on. A few more metaphors in the next couple of verses. He says this. Be thanked that you used to be a slave to your own wrongdoing, a slave to self-centeredness, a slave to to your own bad habits, but now you've been delivered and you can be not a slave but a child of God. Another metaphor, he says, the wages of sin, if you want to try to work your way to God, you'll get the wages, you'll get the payment of that, and you'll get the payment of the bad stuff you did, and you'll get the, the good deeds weren't as hot as you thought, the payment of the bad things you did. Or, you can take a gift from God that he'll make you a saint. Do you want wages based on what you've done or the gift that comes from God? He said, now we say it another way. You are a debtor. You're in debt to your wrongdoing. But if you receive from me, I will adopt you into my family. And here's the thing about being adopted into the family of the person who owns the world. You're now an heir to all of his riches. So you went from not being a child to being in the family. You went from being in debt to being rich. And this is not because of anything you've done. This is because of God offered this as a a gift to you. And that's what he's going on to say. He wants you to receive this. And lastly, he says, it's been imputed to you. Which is a weird word. We'll come back to that in a second. Think of this metaphor. God says, give me your resume. Not the resume you hand out to your employers. The resume of all the wrongdoing you've done. Everything you've ever done is on that. Not Facebook where you pretend to be something you're not. Factbook, the real things that you've done. And if you give me your resume of everything bad you've done, I will give you my resume of everything good Jesus did. We will exchange resumes. And you can be acceptable and at peace with God. I will fix you what's broken in you. I will fix what's broken in your heart. I will give you a right standing with God by exchanging your resume for my resume. That's the main message of the Bible. And when you do that, you can no longer, you don't have to rationalize your, your wrongdoing. You're in a fight and your wife says you probably did something wrong. You go, you yeah, know, I probably did something wrong. Jesus had to die for a lot more than this. I probably did something wrong here. You begin to own what you do wrong because you can have guilt without condemnation. You know, whatever you discover about yourself, it can be forgiven. Whatever you discover about yourself has already been forgiven if you receive this gift. Let's go back to that last phrase he uses. It's been imputed to you who believe in him as righteousness. That's a weird word. The only place that uses that in modern world today is actually the, the company Apple. In his autobiography, Steve Jobs talked about their marketing philosophy, and they said the most important thing they do is they impute to their products quality. So imputation is one of Apple's marketing philosophies. Do you remember the first time you opened your first iPhone? And you got the box... And the way it was packaged, the way the, the phone sat, the way the earphones sat, you know, before you've opened it, before you touched any of the, the apps, before you even you, you saw it, and the packaging imputed quality, imputed excellence. You learned about the product by the way it was packaged or boxed up. That's what imputed means. And Apple says they impute quality to their products by how they package them. What Paul's saying is that in the same way, no matter what you've done wrong, no matter what wrongdoing you've done, God offers to put you in Christ's packaging. He boxes you up with your wrongdoing in the box of Christ's righteousness. And now that you're in the box, your wrongdoing is covered. And you are now in Christ. And now that you're in Christ, you have a right standing with God. And that means that you're willing to own your junk because every time you discover something about yourself, you go, oh, I found something else, God, you were willing to cover. So think of it like that iPad box. That's what he means, back to our opening verse, Romans 8, 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. They put you with all the things on your phone that shouldn't be on your phone, all things you've done with your life you shouldn't have done with your life, but all that gets boxed up in his perfection and that is the solution to living without guilt because you can own stuff unlike a psychopath but without the shame and guilt because you don't have the condemnation that's what he's saying here when you're boxed up with perfection you want to live consistent with that new identity given to you and so the next couple chapters he plays out all kinds of implications to this Chapter 12, he says, if you realize that you are fully acceptable to God right now, you're going to want to serve other people because you want to serve others the way God served you. You want to live out that new identity. Wow, God did this for me. How could I not help others? You want to live under authority, even to governments, because, you know, God is your ultimate authority. And if the ultimate authority did that for you, you want to live under authority, because that, that same spirit that said your parents, you can't tell me what to do. is the same thing that to your boss can't tell me what to do. You want to have God begin to work on that area of your life because he's forgiven you for it. Next chapter, your ability to love your neighbor as yourself because God loved you when you weren't his neighbor and made you his neighbor. He talks about a whole, whole chapter on freedom. Instead of using your freedom to exploit other people, do whatever you want, you begin to learn how to use your freedom and to use it without flaunting it. And if you see that what you're doing is causing somebody else to stumble or somebody else to get hurt, you say, you know what, I'm allowed to do that, but if it's going to hurt you, if it's going to affect you negatively, I don't need to do that. Because the freedom I have from God, I don't have to do whatever I want whenever I want it because of what he's done for me. And lastly, you're able to bear each other's burdens in chapter 15 where you begin to say, oh my goodness, you know what, I'm not shocked that you struggle with such and such because I struggle with such and such. And I'm not shocked that you admitted your secrets because I've got secrets too. But let me tell you, there's a God who can forgive your secrets, can work in your life. And I want you to have what I have found. This verse has been so powerful. I memorized it years ago. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That lady came to my office about six months ago now. She said, Chad, I heard your message about forgiveness that day. And I know God's forgiven me. But I can't forgive myself. What do I do? I said, here's what's happened. The real God said he forgives you. The real God says that whatever you've done, he can cover it. But you've replaced the God who forgives with your own opinion. And you're saying, my opinion, what I did isn't forgivable, is actually more real to me than what God says of me. You've exchanged God's opinion for your own opinion. Oh, I have. You need to admit to God that your opinion of yourself, because you want to achieve and make up for what you've done, is what's keeping you from finding forgiveness. And she said, oh, that's exactly what I need to do. And I asked her to memorize this verse, Romans 8, 1. And say, I want you to start believing what God says about you more than what you say about yourself. And she circled back to me a few months ago. She said, I can't tell you the freedom that's bringing my life. I can now have responsibility without condemnation. I can experience guilt, but without shame. I can take responsibility, but without being entangled in my own mess. Deceive, don't do it. Then let you be honest with yourself. Achieve, it's not going to work receive from God, and then live out that new identity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this complex and challenging book of Romans, and thank you for the reminder it gives us, God, that you've called us to live as free people, free from guilt and shame because of the good news of receiving the eternal life for you. And maybe before we close in prayer, you want to just say to God right now, say, God, I want to make that resume exchange today. What a deal. God, I I give you my bad resume with all the things, my secrets, my excuses. And God, I receive your great resume that I can know I have peace with you and that you can fix the situation in my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. We will continue. Back to the drawing board next week.